listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library Podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Today on the podcast, we have a local author, Sarah Miller, who has worked in libraries and bookstores for half of her life. She has written novels, but uh, over the last several years, she has been known for her history books. She's got five books out, and she's working on a sixth. And she was recently featured in our virtual adult story time, beginning, middle, end, reading from her book about the Dion quintuplets. And the thing about Sarah Miller, a a Metro Detroit area-based author, is that especially as of late, when she works on a novel, she really gets lost in the world of her subject. She thrives on research, and she, if at all possible, really just wants to immerse herself and really just get back into the shoes, so to speak, get back into the mind, get back into the lives of the people that she's written about. Um, as I said, she has written novels. She began writing at a very early point in her life. Uh, but she is the author of Miss Spitfire, which is about Helen Keller, which was named an ALA Best Book for Young Adult and uh, nominated for numerous state awards lists as well. Among her books, as I mentioned, The Miracle and Tragedy of the Dion Quintuplets, but she has also written a book about the Borden murders, so that would be Lizzie Borden, and she's also written a book called The Lost crown which is about the daughters of uh czar nicholas ii and she's also written a novel called caroline which was authorized by the little house heritage because it is imagining life on the frontier of caroline ingalls which is the character known as as ma in laura engel wilder's beloved little house books so we are excited to talk to sarah miller and uh, we will share a link in the show notes to the video which is part of the beginning middle and adult story time the virtual adult story time that we started that featured sarah miller this is our chat working in libraries and bookstores. Can you tell me about that? That's true. That happened somewhat by accident. Um, had to do with a, a friend of my mother's worked, was the director of the library, which is was just on the street from where I grew up. And she asked when I was 14, asked my mom, would Sarah like a job? And I said, okay. okay. <laughs> and there I was for, gosh, quite some time. And then I ended up at a children's bookshop um, in Rochester. It's not there any longer, unfortunately. Uh, Halfway down the stairs, children's bookshop. I was there for about six years. Ended up back at the library after the the shop closed. Um, That that shop had lasted 20 years, so it had a good long run. But that, that was just a great place to really hang out with people who knew books inside and out and were, you know, were interested in what was new for kids and, and, and had a good, really strong knowledge of, of the backlist and the classics of, of children's literature and what was what was changing and what was staying the same and all that kind of stuff. It was just really good. That's a good point. Are there any other points, any other aspects about those environments that you recall appreciating or just loving? Obviously, if you went in as a 14-year-old, you see all those years later ha- having stayed in those environments, there must have been a, a few other even aspects that you were really in love with about it. I guess I must have just always been a book junkie. I, I I know when we used to go camping for a month in South Carolina and there was a little cupboard in the trailer that was all mine and I would just fill it with books. 
I'd go to the library and I'd get, you know, enough to fill that, you know, 14, 16 inches, whatever it was. And I would line them up in size order and literally just read the tallest one to the shortest one. I I learned the hard way not to do it the other way. You start with the fat books (laughs) and you work your way to the short skinny books if you want to finish them all by the time you get home. (laughs) Oh, that sounds okay. So you 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 packed. You knew how to pack that up. So that was good. Yeah. That sounds really cozy. (laughs) I guess let's jump into your your writing life. You were Obviously, it sounds like an avid reader, but then uh, you started writing very young, right? Yeah, I was in first grade. There, there was a thing in town that the newspaper would, the local newspaper would put out every year of, I think it was called Young Writers or something. It was like a, a little sort of magazine style insert in the paper. And it was, you know, a selection from each each grade and each class. There'd be one or two kids. And so... I wrote a poem about a unicorn <laughs> and in it went. And I mean, that, that was my big break <laughs> really, you know, that must've been a when, thrill um, to see your work. Right. Printed. Right. And when, you know, you're six and people tell you you're good at something, if you're smart, you'll listen and you'll keep doing it. So <laughs> that's how that went. That's good. So you, obviously, if we were just to fast forward to now, you you are very much into history and research. But mm-hmm. when you were very young, you were getting into fiction or what were you what were you interested in then versus now? Um, I, I did like historical fiction all along. Um, I found also Donna Jo Napoli's books, which were mostly at that time she was retelling fairy tales, either from a different perspective or a fuller perspective or both like I think the first one I got hold of was Zell, which was a retelling of Rapunzel okay, cool. um, and had both Rapunzel and her mother who locked her in the tower. She wrote a book about uh, Hansel and Gretel from the witch's point of view. So how like how do you make a lady who's going to put a couple kids in the oven the protagonist of a book? <laughs> and she did it. <laughs> so she really caught me. And, and that that sort of fascination with the other side of the story and the perspective you don't know, you thought you know, or you never even thought of at all um, has stuck with me. I instantly, and I'm, I know I'm kind of jumping all over your timeline here, but I instantly just thought of Caroline as mm-hmm. an inspiration where you are, but we can get to that. Let's talk about, uh, <laughs> you know, should we jump uh, in terms of major plot points in your life should we jump to miss spot to miss spitfire or is there something else uh you would consider as formative experiences before sort of that big first book we could go around the uh the book that's under the bed and and belongs there once again unicorn (laughs) book (laughs) but i i did i mean i started writing a book when i was 10 okay wow um and and it evolved and grew and, and stuff. And I eventually finished it as, you know, I was, I think technically a grown up by the time I finished it and it was kind of good enough to get attention. Like again, people go, Oh, she's good at this, but it was definitely not there yet. So it, it sits on my shelf where it belongs wow. and she'll go no further. <laughs> <laughs> because, and maybe you can speak to this, especially speak to this and please feel free to riff on this, but I think it should be, <laughs> I think it should be reiterated often. Writing a book is very hard. Yeah. Well, for <laughs> me, at least, I mean, some people seem to just, you know, turn them over. I'm, I'm not Stephen King. I'm just right. that man, you know, Patterson, just Daniel Steele, you know, whatever, yes. but 
and they're it's, fun to read. Sure. And I just, I don't have that ability sure. and that's fine. Sure. Take us into Miss Spitfire though. And what inspired that? Miss Spitfire, that happened because I went to see the miracle worker at Meadowbrook theater um, in Rochester. And most people know the story of Helen Keller and the water pump and, and all that jazz and, you know, discovering language. And of course I knew all that, but so we go to the play and, you know, we get to the big finish and the water pump and wah, wah, and, and the light comes on and it, it just, it affects the audience. So the whole audience is up and clapping and I'm up and clapping and my cheeks are wet and I'm going, wait a minute, what just happened here? <laughs> Cause I'd seen it before. I knew, you know, I knew it wasn't a surprise, but it still walloped me. And what got me that day that I hadn't gotten before with Helen Keller was what is it like to not even have a voice inside your head? You know, she couldn't even talk to herself. She couldn't communicate with herself because she didn't, you know, have any kind of spoken or signed language or audio, nothing, nothing, no words. So that's, whoa, that's crazy. Even just trying to get into that, I already feel like that would be challenging from your perspective yeah. to put that on the page mm -hmm. in terms of the writer, you. So what I, what I figured out is you, you can't, how, you know, how do you write the perspective of someone who doesn't have words using words. It, it, you can't, but right. oh, by the way, there's this other lady standing next to her that day and literally for the rest of her life named Annie Sullivan. Mm. And it dawned on me that that was the way to go because it, it, it was said in a documentary in night, like 1955 that won the, the Academy Award that, you know, to the world, the miracle was Helen Keller mm -hmm. to Helen. The miracle was Annie. Right. Who she called teacher for the rest of her life. Right. So what was it about that woman that made Helen Keller possible? Because if you don't have Annie Sullivan, you don't get Helen Keller. So I, I ran with Annie and that was that was where I, you know, really got my start. Comparatively speaking to the some of the other subjects that we're going to talk about in terms of what your books have been about, the miracle worker, Helen Keller is fairly still well known in sort of our conscious histories. But, you know, I feel like when we see history books coming out, there's always sort of the uh, more, uh, how should I say it? Uh, there's a tantalizing subjects like there's always a book about John F. Kennedy or there's always something about the Titanic we can dredge up. But uh, yeah. what you know, you go off into these other directions. You have uh, Tsar Nicholas II and you have Lizzie mm -hmm. Borden, which right. people are a little uh, they like to keep at a little distance because those are, um, I guess, uh, <laughs> starker uh subjects but tell tell us about what drew you to those two uh in any order that comes to your mind the the book i wrote about the last czar's children was, was called the lost crown and i think my first exposure to the romanovs was an unsolved mystery segment about anna anderson slash anastasia which okay. scared the pants off me. I hated that show. My mother loved it, still does. And like the theme song would make me flee the room and go upstairs. Kindred spirits. But, same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. Enact reenactments of murder. Don't need. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> but that one I watched, I believe, because I remember also when I was reading Lois Lowry's book called Anastasia Krupnik and Anastasia is complaining about how she can't get a t-shirt with her name on it because her name is too long and it runs into her armpits. Um, her father reminds her that there's a Russian princess by that name. And I knew who he meant. So I know that by like fourth or fifth grade, I knew about Anastasia. And then 
there again, like with Helen Keller and, you know, the invisible Annie Sullivan, Anastasia had three sisters. So, you know, we remember Anastasia because, I mean, she was fun. She was the clown. She was the trickster, all of that kind of stuff. There's a a cartoon about her, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe she lived, maybe she didn't, blah, blah, blah. But three other people, again, are right alongside her through her whole life. And you usually just see them experience almost identical situations of, of, you know, upheaval and mayhem in their lives because of who they were born to be, you know, an accident of birth. So, so then I I decided, because I'm insane, let's write a book from four points of view at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome though. Yeah. Insane on your part, but for the reader, it's an awesome experience. <laughs> and that goes into, once again, we said that books are hard to complete. They took a, they take a mm-hmm. long time to complete, especially if you love to really yeah. get the research done. And that one was a bugger because um, even though, you know, by then you know, the Soviet Union was gone and the archives were starting to open up. And so information was like flooding out of Russia in Russian. <laughs> you know, and I, I happen to be a Russian miner, so that was helpful. But it's not like I could just sit down and read, you know, these these books. They were there were diaries and letters and all sorts of tantalizing stuff coming out of there. And I mean, <sighs> mountains mm-hmm. of books. I think I had maybe a dozen when I started, and then I ended up with about four dozen. I traded books with people literally all over the planet. A woman in Paris swapped books with me. Somebody in Australia. A 15-year-old kid and I, he was from Serbia. Um, he and I translated Alexei's, uh, their brother's, diary from 1915, you know, which we did online together. And a woman in Russia checked our translation for us. I sent 200 and some dollars to a monastery in Moscow and hoped they would send me the book I wanted. And they did, you know, stand in the grocery store, getting a money order to send to Moscow going, this is a great idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and another thing that gets me about those those poor sisters and yeah. Lizzie Borden is that I feel like that those are subjects that if they do come up in the history class, they're very much treated in a sort of let's acknowledge it. But the less said about that, the better. Moving on. <laughs> right. And, you know, you got into these subjects who were always being addressed as the less said about that, the better and moved on. Mm-hmm. But you unpack them. And then, you know, right. you know, anytime anyone hears Lizzie Borden, but you've got the Borden mm-hmm. murders. Uh, I think everyone gets on edge. Uh, it's 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 an instant conjuring of, uh, you know, gruesomeness. But talk about mm-hmm. that book yeah. now. <laughs> Mayhem and Mayhem and all that. <laughs> the thing about Lizzie Borden that's so interesting is everybody thinks they know everything about Lizzie Borden. Right. They think they believe they know how the case ended. And quite often they're wrong. Spoiler, that woman was acquitted. Didn't everybody know thinks he got away with murder, mm-hmm. you know. Because you've heard the rhyme. Right. So the rhyme must be right. I don't remember how I got onto Lizzie Borden. I remember when I was working at the library, I was I was a page, so you know, I'm pushing the the book carts through the stacks. And there was a book called The Lizzie Borden Source Book that was this funny little combination of like newspaper scrapbook with actual articles that's uh a man whose name I've conveniently forgotten. Um, had it always happens on podcasts. <laughs> Plus Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony. And so me being, you know, ever so industrious and sneaky, I I laid that book open on my cart. And as I was pushing up and down the rows and putting books on the shelf, I was reading the the Q&A of the inquest testimony. That's a pro tip Um, move for you library pages out there. (laughs) That's a pro tip. 
And then I slept with the light on for a week. And, you know, that was I was a teenager at that time. But when you when you read what is actually known about Lizzie Borden for sure versus everything that's all the conjectures that have been made about her. It's a very, very unequal balance. We know very little about her for sure. So how how did we get from she was a Sunday school teacher? You know, right. right. <laughs> yeah, we just we um, um, it's a it's just it's so reductive. Yeah, it's a word she I was very do. active in, in charitable works. She taught Chinese immigrants. She taught Sunday school. Right. And we just but think of that. Everybody axe. knows that she is, you know, a, a Halloween costume with an axe. She's a bobblehead. She's a cartoon. She's a murderer. How do you account for the giant gap between those two things? That's what's what I got intrigued by. And that's how I made the shift to nonfiction, because when I'm feeling very snotty, which is quite often um, (laughs) my remark, you know, why didn't you write fiction about Lizzie Borden is because so much of what's written about Lizzie Borden is already fiction, even if it claims to be nonfiction. I mean, there's a book by I'll actually say the person's name and the title. It's Goodbye, Lizzie Borden by Robert Sullivan. That man was a judge from Massachusetts. Here's a man from the same state as Lizzie Borden, who is a judge who is supposed to be impartial. That sounds like a great source. He misquotes trial testimony and sometimes reverses the meaning of it. Oh, no. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I go bananas with stuff like that. Um, There are other books that are just outright nonsense that claim to be nonfiction. And everybody... In my opinion, the, the mistake that people make when they try to tackle that topic is to try to solve it. Mm-hmm. And so they're interpreting everything through the lens of their solution. They're telling you all of the things that point to their conclusion being correct and often avoiding a lot of complications that would sway you from from their scenario. So if you take it on objectively and just say here is what the prosecution said. Here is how the defense rebutted that evidence or provided other evidence and just step back and let people use their brains. Because she, I mean, she did admittedly do all, you know, kinds of stuff that did not help her case at all. And, And that's difficult to explain. And in a sense, why bother? It speaks for itself. How you interpret it, it depends on a lot of factors. A newspaper report at the time even said, you know, how... How you think of this will depend very much on your own interpretation of the evidence. It was not open and shut. And the jury only took, gosh, I want to say like 50 minutes to come back with that not guilty verdict. And they did that. They waited out of respect for the prosecuting attorney who they thought had done a a very admirable job. And, you know, they didn't want to insult him, but they were very clear as soon as they sat down that they could not label her guilty. Now you can, and I I do make the distinction that not guilty is not the same as innocent. And we will never know probably because there's not going to be a smoking gun. It was a hatchet. (laughs) (laughs) I think I also, I gotta say, I think it's really telling that you did work in libraries. Recently I was interviewing another librarian on this podcast and I'm going to badly paraphrase her, but she said that one of the (laughs) things that she was most excited about when it, when it came to libraries is that libraries are able to show a lot of folks so much more about history that they might not have gotten in school. Now that's not any dig at school, 
Yeah. And, you know, it's hard, like with schools and textbooks and all of that, there's so much topic that they have to cover. You know, yeah. it's such a broad span of time and, and issues and stuff that they don't have time to delve into really minute specifics and nuances. It's a very digest. Often. It's very much a digest. Um, yeah. Yeah. And one thing I learned, especially from the, the Romanov project was don't you dare discount those armchair fans, even if they're 14 or 15 years old. Because when people, you know, have the the interest, a very narrow interest, they will dig so deep and so much deeper than than anyone else because they have the time and the inclination and it's fun. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the kid I was talking about earlier, who's now like a grown up professor of mathematics in Serbia. Wow. Yeah. You know, he was 15, 16 years old at the time. Right. But I could, you know, pull out any picture of the heir to the throne, Alexei Nikolaevich, and Nina would be able to tell you, oh, that was taken August 15th, 1915 in Sebastopol. They were visiting, you know, this was going on. He knew that because that was what he loved. That was his thing. And, you know, the the big names of you know Russian scholarship at that time couldn't do that. They could do all kinds of other things, but they couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Let's go, I guess, also into Caroline. And then I was wondering if that if that maybe connects back to having worked in a, a children's bookstore, because we're talking about when we think about Helen Keller or we think about Little House on the Prairie, we very much think mm-hmm. of these childhood experiences. But yeah. uh, in the same way that you did with Caroline now, you're soaring more of the story. Can you talk about the inspiration mm-hmm. for that? Well, and it's funny that you could argue that if, if it had not been for Halfway Down the Stairs Children's Bookshop, Caroline might not have ever happened because it was coincidental that while I was working there, HarperCollins was issuing audio editions of the entire series that were read by Cherry Jones. And they're terrific. The owner of the shop took one home, you know, CDs home one day of Little House in the Big Woods, just to, you know, give them a spin and see, you know, do we recommend these? And she came back saying, oh, heck yes, these are great. You should all listen to them. So I did, you know, I, took one home, listened to the first one and the second one and the third one and, you know, on and on. And the thing is when there's two things going on, one is when you get a professional actor to read words, they put more into the performance than is on the page. That's their job. And so when you've got that going on and you are yourself a grown up, some of the things that come out of Ma's mouth sound different from those, that combination of new adult perspectives. And also there was, what really got me was there's a scene in Little House on the Prairie when Pa has gone into town, which Laura Ingalls Wilder presents as 40 miles away. So it's like a four day trip there and back to to do his trading and all of this. And he's late. So Laura wakes up in the night on the night Pa was supposed to come home and the wind is, is howling outside and Ma's sitting in front of the fireplace with Pa's pistol in her lap. Now, raise your hand if you remember Pa having a pistol, rather, in addition to a rifle. (laughs) Because I sure didn't. And I thought, what? wait, (laughs) what's going on with that lady in the rocking chair? (laughs) Because what an image, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you're sitting up late with two little, well, there were three little babies, you know, basically, because Laura Ingalls Wilder in reality was only about three years old Mm -hmm. during that time. So in real life, Caroline Ingalls has three children under the age of five Mm -hmm. and she's sitting in that cabin all by herself with a pistol in her lap which kind of tells you that she's not really at ease no i wouldn't say so (laughs) 
So when we think of Little House on the Prairie, we think of calm and cozy and, you know, warm fuzzies. But what if you're the lady in the rocking chair? And it's your job to make everybody feel that way. Yeah. And that's so much and you're part of 30 years old. Right. <laughs> you know? And that's so much part of your inspiration, though. You really want to get into the lives of these people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another thing when it comes into writing about history is that it's interesting to find moments in history where there was a reaction or a response to something that seemed extraordinary or unprecedented. And that would have been five babies being born in Canada. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about the next mm-hmm. book, which is the the Dion Quintuplets? The Dion Quintuplets, uh, that was another just complete accident that I, I stumbled onto them <laughs> for no reason that I can come up with, recall. One day I said to myself, remember those little dolls, those little, they were like two inches high and they were, Tyco made them. They were just little posable dolls that with little brushable hair. And there were five of them. There were three girls and two boys and they called them the quints. And you could get blonde ones or red haired ones and white ones and black ones. There were all these different accessories, you know, five of a kind of baths and rocking chairs and all this stuff, all this silly little plastic stuff. I said to myself, do I still have those? Are those sought after? Those in the attic, should I eBay those and get some dollars? And so I went to eBay and I said, quince dolls. And when you do that, what you get is the Madame Alexander Dion quintuplet dolls that were all the rage in the 1930s. And that sort of rung a bell in my head because my grandma on my mother's side Loved everything you were supposed to love in the 1930s. She loved Judy Garland, Betty Davis, Shirley Temple in a big way, and the Dion Quintuplets. Wow. So that was another thing where I went to the library. I got three books out over the weekend, read them all, and said, okay, I'll do this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The Dion's were a sensation. They were born in 1934, about 200 miles north of Toronto. And the thing was that five babies born at once had never lived. It just, it wasn't done. They were so little, you know, and they were so often premature that they, they just didn't live. People didn't really know the word quintuplet because there was no use for it prior to the Dion's arrival. And, and they became a phenomenon because they just wouldn't die. Mm-hmm. They were so, so itty bitty and so fragile, but they just kept living. The, the five of them together when they were born weighed under 14 pounds. That's this is interesting because they were probably... There's there's a composite of reactions to that because there's uh, there's like the tenderness of like, oh, babies, but also right. kind of mm, freak show. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a very circusy. Right. Kind of thing that happened. And then I, I just love how you're like, well, I went to the library and I got three books out, but then we shouldn't skip over the part that, you know, the research is so important to what you do. No one can. Yeah. I'm not saying that you have to toot your own horn, but no one should be able to really say like, oh, I just went to the library. And in this in this sort of Wikipedia world that we live in, where we just want to research takes a long time. Yeah. After after that, when I decided, yes, I want to write about Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emily and Marie, um, I ended up going to North Bay, Ontario four times in total. Mm -hmm. Two were just kind of to play, Mm -hmm. but two were like serious research. Went to the Archive of Ontario in Toronto where I was able to get the diaries that their first nurse had kept during the first two years of their lives. Downloaded, gosh, I want to say in round numbers, 4,000 articles um, from databases, newspaper databases, because 
they they were the thing yeah. that people wanted to know about. And so there are just pictures and articles galore all through the 30s. They were in three feature length movies before they were four years old. Wow. They were in newsreels. They were their faces were on Quaker Oats and Colgate toothpaste, Lysol, palm olive, anything you could put those babies faces on people would buy. Uh, shout out to databases, though, for sure. <laughs> yes. Um. Can you imagine? I mean, think of this people. The Internet gets a little bit of a, you know, kind of a bad rap. People turn up their noses at it. But back in the day, if I wanted to read Dion coverage, say, from the Toronto Star, I would have to go to a library that had bound volumes of the Toronto Star. I would have to take them off the shelf, lay them on a big old table, open them up and turn pages and look with my eyeballs until I saw the word Dion or quintuplet. Right. And now I sit down in front of my computer and I type Dion quintuplets, please. And it says, oh, sure. Here's 1,312 articles about the Dion's from 1934 to 1937. What would you like to read? Sh shout out to filters. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's magic. The internet is magic. Sometimes it's black magic, but... <laughs> You know, there's um, a lot to be said for what you can find now. Yeah, for sure. Which helps especially the folks like you who are in your yeah. line of writing work. And yeah. before we let you go, is there anything you want to say about what you're working on next or what you have already maybe completed next? The next book is coming out in April. That's also nonfiction. And it's probably about something you've never heard about in general, which is Violet and Daisy Hilton. Not Hilton Hotels, okay. not Paris Hilton. Okay. But the Hilton sisters of vaudeville, who were born in 1908 in Brighton, England, and they were conjoined twins. Um, they were joined, the polite way to say it, is at the hip. Okay. And they were exploited from mm, the time they were three weeks old, if not sooner. Oh, boy. They were, their mother was unwed and had no interest in raising probably one baby, much less a set of twins who were conjoined. Um, and so she gave them to her midwife, who promptly put them on display in the back room of her pub. If you bought a pint, you could go see the babies. And then they learned how to sing and dance and perform. And they performed all over the world. Wow. For the first like nine years of their life, they were in England, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Australia. And then they came to the United States where they toured the carnival circus circuit. And then in 1925, hit it big on vaudeville and were breaking all records up to that point. They smashed the record that had been previously set by Jack Dempsey, the prize fighter for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I would say in 1925, they were making $3,000 a week in 1925 money. I, I don't remember the conversion, but it's a pile of money. It's yeah. We're talking maybe Yes. Well, definitely tens of thousands in comparison. I mean, I'd take 3000 a week now. Right now, <laughs> right? And again, this is something, maybe I'll speak for my listeners too, that I've never heard of. No, and no. I, I know that there are famous conjoined twins, I'm forgetting their names, but yeah. I also know that they are uh, they're men. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm noticing this, this arc here that when you dig into history, you're also digging into women that history have forgotten. Yep. Yep. Particularly. And that hasn't been exactly intentional initially but now i'm kind of like well do i want to break my streak not really <laughs> <laughs> um people who are familiar with the 1932 cult classic movie called freaks that was directed by todd browning will be slightly familiar with violet and daisy because they appeared in that movie 
Oh, really? Yep. They are the conjoined twins in Freaks. Well, before we finally let you go, do you have any words of wisdom or encouraging words or complete just flat out uh, uh, hard truth advice to anyone out there who is (laughs) aspiring to be a writer and especially maybe aspiring to look into history and, you know, the mountains of research that maybe lays before them? What would you say? I believe I'm stealing this quote from Robert Caro, who wrote the, and is still writing, the giant multi-volume biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, um, which is, turn all the pages. Look at everything, look at everything you can find is what that boils down to, you know. Just open all the file cabinets and turn all the pages because you don't know what's sitting in there waiting to be discovered. I imagine coffee plays into this. <laughs> for most people, but not for me. No. Okay. <laughs> well, Sarah Miller, it has been a pleasure to have you on this podcast. It's been fun. And we look forward to the book in April and uh, keep up all the great work. And we appreciate Thank your you. words of wisdom. And we, uh, uh, I admire your, uh, your patience and fortitude when it comes. <laughs> well, I have a high tolerance for tedium. That's another thing you need if you want to do this job. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And that was Sarah Miller, local author and especially working on history and uncovering forgotten women throughout history, including Violet and Daisy, the story of Vaudeville's famous conjoined twins, which is coming out in the springtime. But we also talked about all of Sarah Miller's books, which total five, which is coming on six now. And if you want to learn more about Sarah Miller, you can go to simply sarahmillerbooks.com, which is a link we'll have to uh, in our, our show notes, of course. We'll be helping you out there. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast, of course. It's called A Little Too Quiet. My name is Jeff Milo. We produce this podcast in-house here at the Ferndale Area District Library. And if you want to support this podcast, you can just go to ferndalefriends.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>